0: Welcome to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast. We're joined today by Oliver Baxter. Oliver Baxter is one of a team of three who make up the Herman Miller Insight Group. Their focus is human-centric design based on workplace research and trends. Oliver is based in Dubai, lucky him, <laughs> although as he just mentioned, it's very hot there at the moment, so he hasn't been out much. Ah. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, Where he works um, in Dubai with the Herman Miller Middle East and Africa team. Uh, They explore how to bring humanity back to the workplace. And they have the concept of a living office, which I'm going to talk to you about shortly, um, which is a high-performing workplace that delivers an elevated experience of work for people and helps organisations achieve their strategic goals. She said reading off the sheet of paper. (laughs) Um, So putting that aside now, Oliver, can you tell us a little bit about what Herman Miller does? Uh, Probably a lot of listeners know already um, about Herman Miller and and stuff, but um, can you tell us a little bit about what you do there as well, please?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, so most people are, are probably familiar with, uh, with Herman Miller being one of the big three uh, furniture providers in the world, specifically for like commercial furniture, but actually really behind it all, we're more of a, a research institute first and foremost, and then that research and insights feeds into the products that, that we're actually developing. So by market cap, we're actually the largest furniture, um, commercial furniture provider in the world. And um, I'm really proud and pleased to have the role of externalizing the research that we do. Now, of course, some of it is like a very closely guarded secret that I wish I could share with everybody. Um, but it's usually to align like a new point of view or a product that we, we have to keep secretive. Um, and then others of which um, I'm you know, pleased to be able to take that to the market and really try and distribute as far and as wide as possible. Um, you know, it's, it's not just about like, Reading white papers and texts, we think that there should be at least a few people in the company that can talk conceptually about design and how we influence people and maybe not so much about the product side. So I'm, I'm not actually allowed, I'm not permitted to talk about the wonderful products that we do at Herman Miller because my focus is really just kind of being that conduit for people to the R&D um, uh, at Herman Miller. So yeah, that's kind of where we are. <laughs> okay, and your background, do you, you're a
0: psychologist, did I read? or?
1: Yes, yeah, my background, I'm a, I'm a recovering psychologist, I think you describe me as. Uh, that's what I did my postgraduate studies uh, in. And, uh, and then after I, I completed those at Sheffield Hallam University, I went on to uh, work in a private practice in Oslo, Norway for three years. And during that three years time, I, I noticed something really interesting about the types of people that would walk in the door of our practice, and it was usually like one type of person. It was usually a lady in their mid to late 40s suffering from a very specific condition that was burnout. That was by far the most popular um, condition that came through. And of course, you know, uh, as well as the COVID situation, burnout is reaching epidemic proportions the world over as well, with around 38% of people experiencing burnout. And then if you look at um, the, the highest affected profession which is physicians, doctors. They roughly experience 50%. So toss a coin. You're likely to uh, to to get uh, burnout if you're a doctor. Uh, nurses is just a little bit below 50%. So for me, that's kind of worrying, and, and that's what I was passionate about. And then after I I, I left uh, that private practice and, and kind of teaching and stuff, uh, I joined Herman Miller. You know, a furniture manufacturer, a bit of a kind of a a deviation from from the career path But I'm a typical millennial, I suppose, in that sense. Um, And I realized that there's a lot of transferable skills there. And actually, instead of trying to rehabilitate people after dwelling within offices for 15 to 20 years, a wonderful opportunity to be preventative with the recommendations that we make at Herman Miller and the research that we uh, conduct and then communicate out there into the market. So a lot of things that, you know, we've been implementing for like the last 150 years is really not serving us so well for the workplaces of today. But just because we've always done it that way, people still continue to do it the same way because there's that perspective that the office isn't broken, When like I can tell you fundamentally in many, many elements, it really truly is. And we, we need to use the best research to, um, to inform our decisions and not just base our decisions on intuition and experience
0: I mean obviously you, everything you do is human-centric and it's human-centric research human-centric design obviously with your background with the psychology and you've seen people with burnout coming in um i mean for us you know we, we um implement biophilic design we bring views of nature in we can see the difference particularly it makes in healthcare what you've mentioned you know with doctors and patients and families and staff and everybody you know, obviously, usually in a sort of white walled, really awful environment, not soft, not feminine, if you want. Um, but um, when you bring biophilic elements in, you know, better light, better air quality, natural textures and actually the prospect, you know, that those views of nature and we can see a, you know, a fundamental difference. I mean, do you do you see um, biophilic design um, in your practice? Do you see biophilic design making a difference? And obviously it's all about human centric design. But I mean, how do you see the two overlapping?
1: Um, So I'm incredibly passionate about biophilic design, and I know it's not limited to vegetation and greenery, but I'm actually, uh, my family, three generations of florists. Oh, really? Yeah. So like, I'm really, I I grew up around flowers. You know, uh, I don't know if anyone knows anything about being a florist, but there are very early mornings going to the market to get the flowers and very late evenings preparing them especially around like holidays and valentine's day and that sort of thing so it's a, it's a pretty grueling job and you're always wet and you're always cold um but when i um uh, e- even during my undergrad studies we would read journal articles about the benefits of um uh, a vegetation greenery natural source of daylight clean fresh air Um, which of course has a correlation with the greenery and vegetation um, inside the built environment so being that hospitals when you're looking at um, reduced uh, pain medication being required uh, the reduction in time spent within hospitals just from like looking out a natural window Um, and then you look at the, uh, the commercial environment i remember reading one study in india and it was one of the filthiest cities uh, for air quality in India and they turned it to, into one of the best air quality facilities in the world. Now I can relate to that because I'm from Sheffield and Sheffield for a long time was the filthiest city in Europe. And now that is 100% not the case because it was our, uh, it was our steel uh, manufacturing um, during the Second World War that gave us that kind of accolade. Uh, but yeah, I'm a big believer in vegetation and greenery. and. I ask uh, a lot of um, the, the clients that I'm working with and conferences that I attend, you know, if you were to look as I do uh, inside space and just see the lack of greenery and vegetation and understand that there is a correlation to, you know, um, to, to being engaged and, um, you know, to be more creative as well. So the more greenery in the uh, in the environment, there's more oxygen in the environment because, uh, greenery obviously takes in carbon dioxide, which, you know, we all produce, some of us more than others, granted. And, uh, and they expel oxygen, which is what everybody needs, um, you know, for our survival. But there's actually a correlation between oxygen in the blood supply and uh, the elevated levels in our brain uh, inspires more creativity. So what I like to remind people is that if you were working down a coal mine, um, you know, 100 years ago, as my grandfather was, Um, you would quite often be given like um, like a canary or a budgie or some sort of bird song to take down there with you. And if uh, the air quality became no longer hospitable for uh, supporting human life, um, the bird would stop singing and it would go belly up and it would die. And that would be an indicator to get out of that um, coal mine as quickly as possible. Now, when I look at offices, I just see like those that have included plants to like a small degree, they're kind of dead and dying. And that, for me, is saying exactly the same thing as that canary that was down the coal mine, is that if you can't even get your plants to survive in offices today, imagine the, deprec- uh, the, the detrimental repercussions this is having on the, the human uh, system. So um, I'm a very big believer in it. I, I'm a big believer in positioning people close to natural sources of daylight as well, near windows, which all too often they don't. Uh, especially in this part of the world where I'm based in, in the Middle East and Africa, they like to put all the private offices and the, uh, and the meeting rooms around the periphery of the floor plate and then everyone else on the inside, of course, that's the wrong way around because you don't get any natural daylight for those that are spending the vast majority of time sat at their desk, with the average office being unoccupied 77% of the time from our research and uh, meeting rooms, again, being too large and, uh, and underutilized. So they become wonderful little saunas, and then the people who really need that daylight are just cut off from it. And uh, I think there's some research that if you're positioned within six meters of a natural source of daylight, you will on average sleep for 45 minutes longer than someone who is positioned more than six meters from a natural source of daylight. Yeah, I'm a big believer in the in the biophilic effect. Um, you know, I champion it in in all the presentations that I do. Not that we sell <laughs> uh, green or vegetation at Herman Miller, but like you said at the beginning, we're we're a holistic, humanistic uh, company, and we have to you know um, present research that's on the periphery of our expertise as well, and not just what 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 known for. Mm.
0: That's really interesting. Um, As you say, you know, kind of having the offices with no the the main workforce being actually inside an environment and not having views of nature, having not being able able to see the outside space. Um, It doesn't make sense, really, but I suppose it's maybe a status thing and and stuff, you know, they kind of obviously they're getting people come in, but you can, as you say, design an office. In a certain way you can sort of shake it up a bit so that you do have the benefit for everybody um, and if you think the workforce is the one that's actually generating money for you <laughs> you really want them to be in the best environment so they can do the best job they can to earn you the most amount of money <laughs> to be honest you know <laughs> um,
1: yeah I'm, i mean I, I look at it as like all employees in an organization i think all too often in this part of the world we focus on the fee and the senior management to lead the way in the designs that we're um, laying out for everybody. But for me, seniority is, is just another person in the sample uh, the sample set that I'm taking. So when I'm going into an organization, I need to get people um, vertically and horizontally within the organization. So horizontally like HR, finance, IT, sales, marketing, corporate real estate, and then vertically um, being kind of um, higher, lower, medium um, um, forms of, of management as well as those that are doing task of growth so that we're, we're getting a good sample of the organization because that's who we need to cater for is like the average. Um, and you know, we want to focus on what it is that they need. Um, but I think those that are in the more senior positions can quite often voice what it is that they want, but wants and needs are very different. And I'm really interested in what it is that people need to do their job. And for the most part, that seems to be really lacking in workplaces today is is focusing on those needs, whereas it's very easy to focus on those that shout the loudest and what it is that they want. Um, so I always kind of encourage my clients just to to take a step back. And of course fionas are important. Um, but, um, but for me it's it's about catering for everybody. And you know, people come and go, but it's that average culture that you're looking for and what you're striving to achieve in the future as an organization. And using space as a stepping stone to get you to that culture that you want in the future. But unless you have a clear, true north statement of where you want to be in three to five years, how on earth can you plan your environment, let alone your culture, to get you to where you want to be in in that three to five years future scenario?
0: Are you finding that people, you know, that there are more employers kind of open minded about maybe implementing biophilic design or maybe trying to fit their office out better? to make it better for their employees? I mean, are they are they worried about their staff coming back? Are they worried about what the staff are feeling?
1: I, I would say no, for the most part. Um, what, what I'm seeing is some knee-jerk reactions yeah. uh, based on, again, what makes sense and what's intuitive, but that is no longer appropriate for the workplace of today. Uh, I, I never thought that I would be in a profession um, you know, since I joined Herman Miller, <laughs> um, where we would have people's lives on the line. You know, the decisions that we take are influencing people in, in a life and death way. And that's why it's no longer appropriate to use intuition. And no one has any experience in this anymore. Well, I mean, we have a little bit of experience because we've been playing in, uh, in the healthcare environment for many, many years. We've been helping um, hospitals be created and designed uh, across the world, predominantly in, in North America and Uh, here in the middle east so we've got a lot of learnings that we can apply from that but it's no longer appropriate to to use intuition we have to use data we have to we have to use evidence and the best source of evidence that we have right now is from the world health organization and the cdc and then you have other organizations like uh osha which is the uh, occupational health association that are listening to those guys a little bit making recommendations based on intuition and what makes sense so as you mentioned, those, uh, those plastic screens before, um, it kind of makes sense if you think about it, like division, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna get sneezed on, but um, unfortunately that only really counts for like the big droplets, and those are the ones that go up and then down you know, relatively quickly. But we've, we've since discovered that COVID-19 is aerosolized, it is present in the air for hours uh, in smaller particles as well. So it's more about the HVAC system And we've kind of really uh, made reference to the fact that people in cubicles still get colds, um, right? Air travels above, around and under, you know, all these sorts of environments. And if you think about what the material of those screens are, it's like plastic or maybe you've used some water, even some metal to delineate the space and break people up and show them where they should be sat. Um, One, it's quite isolating and lonely. But two, those are the surfaces where COVID-19 survives the most amount of time on. Um, if you look at the materiality that, that doesn't support the life of COVID-19, you're looking at wool, it's about three hours, and then you've got cardboard around three to five hours. So if you're going to put any screen in there, then you probably want to go for the cheap, the cheaper wool and, and cardboard options rather than spending money on ex- expensive solutions. Now, for those, those are people who are listening right now, they're thinking, well, Ollie, you, you, you're selling yourself short here. You're going to not make enough money as an organization by telling people this. But at Herman Miller, we believe that we have a duty of care to first help help people and then sell second. So of course we will provide screens, you know, when clients ask and request and they do when we've created a whole host of new ones since lockdown. But we always make it, uh, we always make it apparent the research and the fact that there is very little research to suggest that screens will prevent the spread of COVID-19. There's actually only one journal article from 1968 that was covering uh, those face shields. And that's speaking over petri dishes so there's just not enough research to suggest that that will have an effect what it does do is it does inc- increase the feelings of psychological safety so you know if you can see your employer has um done some COVID mitigating design factors in your workplace then you're going to feel a little bit more comfortable being there and there you can, therefore you can be more productive uh, but it's when that comfort can slip into complacency and you stop washing your hands and wearing masks and coughing into the, the pit of your arm and, um, you know, some of those, you know, what we call MPIs, non-pharmaceutical interventions that, that there is so much research on, they're not doing anymore because it's so categorical. If you get so complacent because of the screens, um, then you, they need to go. So, um, so it's, again, we need to look at the data, we need to look at the research and, and that's where we need to focus our attention.
0: I suppose we sort of move away a little bit about from COVID and from the sneezes and all that sort of stuff, maybe. Um, do you think, um, well, I mean, obviously it is. I mean, do you think the future workplace is going to change? I mean, there's lots and lots of talk about it and at Workplace Trends, there was a lot of discussions about it um, on the online conference. And I know there's going to be more in the, on their conference in October. Um, I mean, do you, what, how do you see, I mean, from the research that you've done over this year, um, after, as a, res- as a result of the COVID and the, the lockdown situation, and people working from home, um, maybe the office. Um, I mean, I, I know I, I came to one of your um, the Herman Miller Insight um, events that you did in well, not you not yourself, but Herman Miller did in London, and it was about you know what's the future of the workplace, and I and I came up with a thing of like okay, there's no, be no work, it's going to be no workplace and and it's going to be um, a venue. <laughs> so it would be a thing that people will come in to brainstorm or whatever but it'd be heavily branded but it will be a venue for people to come together and it's like oh that's quite cool and i was like yeah I, I, <laughs> um but i mean I, I don't know i mean how do you see i mean i, I think obviously there will always be um, a need to have a, an office because of certain companies needing telephones or whatever it is um or some kind of um research or kind of communication together um, different sort of brainstorming Maybe kind of creativity sessions i mean how do you see uh, from the research that you've done right now obviously it's going to change probably in in, in, by the end of the year even but how do you see the use the use of the workplace changing
1: yeah i think for me it's about trends and fads right so when i was growing up I, i had to have a pager i had to have a pager but the only person that had the number to that page was my mum, but it was more of a, a symbol, right? So it was really to have a pager. Uh, it was totally impractical um, and I never really used it. And then that was demonstrated to become a fad, whereas the mobile phone uh, later became the trend that's been long-standing ever since then. And I, I think a lot of these um, conversations that are happening with, with COVID is, is a knee-jerk reaction and... Um, some of them will be demonstrated to be fads and others of which will demonstrate to be trends. So I think if we look at some of the, the research that was coming through before COVID even happened, um, then we can see that what might be perpetuated and excelled by COVID-19. So uh, as an example, um, the amount of space that organizations used uh, around the world for their people, um, it, the, the consumption was ridiculous uh they they consumed far too much space their meeting rooms were typically too big three times too big uh they were giving desks and chairs to every every employee understanding that only 30 percent of the time were actually sat at a desk in a chair and then and then you know you've got these private offices that like i said before are, are, are unoccupied 77 percent of the time so there was a lot of real estate that was that was being wasteful and underutilized so that was the trend before covid19 and then if we look at that, this kind of remote working revolution that's happened um, which in Europe is you know kind of pretty standard but here in the Middle East and Africa is something that we've really struggled because we struggle with kind of trust in this part of the world to a, to a greater degree at least what I found so they typically don't allow employees to, to work from home and then we've all had to go into lockdown that trust has had to been implemented and actually some surprising results have has happened off, off the back of that so I think that there will be a further reduction in the amount of real estate that we're consuming um, I think also, you know, I, I hate the saying, because everybody's using it, pardon me, this hub and spoke model that everyone's talking about as well, of having kind of a centralized um, hub for the organization, and then satellite offices, whether that's co-working or, or smaller versions of that, that, uh, that HQ, um, I think that's really going to help like de-densify cities. Um, because, you know, how, how much further can we continue to pack people onto public transportation and, you know, hike up the, the price of, uh, of rent uh, in those cities? So, you know, the only, th- the only reason why that was happening is because organizations were stipulating that you had to come to the office. If you're allowed to work from home, then you typically work further out, you know, and, uh, and then you come in for one or two days of the week. So I think we'll see a big reduction in the amount of real estate that organizations are consuming. Remote working will continue to rise and it should have been rising at a greater rate beforehand, but the trust typically wasn't there. It differs in different pockets of the world, of course. And then you know, the resources to be able to support working from home as well. So technology and also furniture. Um, and again, that looks quite different depending on where you are in the world as well. I can say, you know, having my own dedicated space here is something that I'm trying to arrange right now. But if I was in Hong Kong or Singapore, I mean, that's just going to be a, a, an element inside my, my lounge, right? In, in the one bed or the studio apartment that I live in. Uh, so it very much depends on where you are in the world as to as to the impact that these trends could have. But I think that will be the main one is the uh, the using less real estate and de-densifying it and more remote working and more flexible working arrangements as well. Um, I'm really proud to say that my organization has um, started to look into maybe reducing the working week um, from five to four days, but um, elongating those hours by two per day. Um, Being at um, sabbaticals as well, between uh, six to 12 weeks, unpaid of course. Um, also, we are now able to stipulate which hours we'd like to work. So me as a, a new father, I'm up at 6am regardless of whether I want to be or not. Um, so to start work at nine, you know, I would much rather you know, start work at eight, finish a little early around the same time as my wife does who's in teaching. And then we have some together time with our son at the end of the day, rather than a quick hour, you know, which involves feeding and bathing before he goes to bed. So flexibility, I think is, a, is another one as well.
0: Well congratulations on on
1: your new book.
0: Yeah. <laughs> really it's news. been great.
1: Lockdown's been fantastic for me to be perfectly honest.
0: <laughs> it's really nice. I'm um, just with that in mind actually how do you think the future, what do you reckon the workplace is going to look like when he reaches um you know work workplace age as it were. So he's going to go to work about sort of 21, 22. What, what do you think the workplace will look like? <laughs>
1: yeah um I, I, tra- I used to travel quite a lot on my own. In fact, before my son was born, that year I did 138 days on the road. Uh, and I, I don't like to be that sad person that's always looking at like his phone and he's got the blue reflective light of Facebook on his face. So quite often when I'm going to dinner, I do what I call um, constructive eavesdropping. And I listen in on the conversations that's happening around me. And this is going back about three years ago now. There was a conversation on, on the table just, just next to me, and I could just about overhear what, what was being said. And it was a family, but the father was having a very atypical conversation with his son. But, you know, it could have quite easily been a mother with, his, with her daughter. And the father said to the son, son, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the son said, Daddy, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> uh, he's like, that's okay. And what he said next really astonished me. And I've been telling everybody about it since since I heard. He said, son, that's okay because your job hasn't been created yet. And I think that is so true. And I think it's really difficult to hypothesize so far into the future. I mean, whenever we do research at Herman Miller, it's always six years into the future because that's the most realistic you can be, um, you know, because of all the factors that are influencing, you know, socioeconomic tech. technology, you know, that's a big one that just disrupts everything. So I think by the time that my son uh, is old enough to enter the world of work, it will be a completely different world of work with many different professions that we haven't even computed uh, now. Um, And uh, it's impossible to say what it could look like. But I think as long as we focus on the functionality rather than the aesthetic, we'll still be in good stead. So focus on the needs of the employee when they come into the workplace rather than just providing those same long rectangular boardrooms that were the first boardrooms 150 years ago uh, and we're still using them today for, for some strange reason. I hope that that's not the case in in 20 years from now when he's old enough to, uh, to enter the world of work. Presumably he's finished university, it might be earlier than that, it could be 16 when he enters the world of work.
0: So what, what in an ideal world, what would be your top three tips what should workforces um, employee employers and company directors and company owners be employing in an ideal world in the next the next few months what what should they be doing to make their workforce um, their people their humans um, in make it make the, make it a better space for them make, make it so that they're you know more creative they're more focused and that they they want to come to work so what would you suggest what would be the top three things?
1: Yeah. Uh, So number one, data infused design. Uh, Number two would be autonomy, which is one of the six fundamental human needs that we've identified that that people are expecting when they come to work today. And then the third one, I'm not just saying this because it's you, but I am a a really true big believer in in biophilia, specifically in in the greenery and vegetation side uh, of that. So, you know, more plants, uh, I think probably the best I've seen is, um, is Lendley's office in London uh, and they have a ratio of six plants to each person, uh, which they admit probably still isn't enough plants. Um, so if you compare yourself to Lendley's and realize that they're still not quite happy with their ratios, then you'll see how far that you have to go. But going back to number one, data infused design, um, we can't just make decisions on intuition and, and previous experience because they haven't been so and now um, we have people's lives at stake, we really have to start to to sample people. So some of the the surveys that I recommend is the Leasman Index, Uh, two really interesting surveys you might be interested from them. One that looks at your real estate and how well that's performing uh, based on the employee's point of view. Second one would be um, the work from home survey from the Leasman Index as well. So they're looking at what it's like being a remote employee. So the real estate one, they've been doing that for like nearly just over 10 years, I think. The work from home has been done during lockdown. Um, but you could also compare that data with Gallup who've been looking at um, pre-lockdown remote working um, uh, stuff as well. And I would highly advise that everybody uses a Gallup survey with their employees just to figure out where you're missing the mark. And if it's the first time that you've done some surveys with your employees, brace yourself. It's not gonna be great, but The thing is is that being human we naturally want to improve once we've measured something so the first time you measure it yeah it's probably not going to be great but thereafter you know where you need to focus your energy on better than just kind of burying your head in the sand and hoping for the best because your talent will leave you um so you know data infused design leverage those resources leverage leverage us at Herman Miller we've got a fantastic amount of data that we've collected over the last well, over 100 years of business to to figure out what makes people productive in terms of the furniture that you're supplying for them. Um, And uh, and we can give you that information for free. It's no bother, no skin off my nose. That's really what I'm employed to do. So reach out to us and uh, and we're quite happy to hand the data off to you that you're you're really interested in. So whether that's creativity, whether it's happiness, whether it's your personality profile, whether it's the, the six fundamental human needs, what motivates you in work that I referenced earlier, um, we can hand that over to you, you know, pretty easily. And then autonomy, uh, autonomy, if you really break it down, is just as William Wallace said, freedom. freedom. So everybody wants freedom and, and we've had it. And, um, you know, well to a degree we've had it, we've been working from home, which for some is freedom for others. Uh, you are now even even more caged uh, with your spouse and your children. <laughs> um, but, uh, it, you know, it, when we when we come out of this lockdown, you know, don't forget all the good lessons that we've learned during it, because there is a silver lining to this cloud, is that we can trust our employees, and that has been demonstrated in every organisation, for the most part, um, that uh, you can trust them, and then so just allow them to work where it works for them, you know. For a long time, work has been a thing that you do, not a place that you go, but we've been forcing employees to go to places, and. You know if you really want to make uh, a great environment it'd be somewhere that people who aren't compelled would naturally turn up to so i constantly challenge my clients and ask them the question that if your office tomorrow was to turn into a co-working facility how many of your employees would pay for the privilege of using your office at which they kind of look at me and go well probably nobody ollie and i said well therein lies the problem right so you're just mandating that people come into the office and you're not providing environments that they would you know want to show their wife and kids to in the weekend you know look what a cool place mummy and daddy work right so i think that's a really uh, a big element as well giving giving people autonomy to choose and then creating an environment that's so compelling that they want to come in and uh, and then balance that remote working with with um, the physical office and co-working and satellite hubs as well
0: Thank you for listening to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast.